Biz Stone is best known as the co-founder of Twitter and Medium, and most recently, co-founder and CEO of Jelly Industries, with co-founder Ben Finkel. Jelly blends tech and ethics in real time by providing a platform for users to ask questions anonymously on topics ranging from the law to cleaning, saving users the time of searching the web and linking real people to each other via tech. Answers can earn a reputation for trustworthiness with a feature called a trust button. His enjoyable book, Things a Little Bird Told Me, Creative Secrets from the Co-Founder of Twitter, is a primer for blending wildly successful entrepreneurship with deep concern for others, lessons in creating opportunities rather than waiting for circumstances to align for our success, and an inspiring pitch for principled innovation and living. The book ends with the sentence, global empathy is the triumph of humanity. I have the privilege of speaking with Biz at Jelly San Francisco office on February 13, 2017. Before we go into some of the ethics questions, can you just talk a little bit about how you came to do Jelly? Oh, sure. Because I first really focused on it because I saw the term trust button. Yeah. And I was so intrigued by just exactly what we've been talking about, yeah. integrating ethics into the tech in real time. The trust button is relatively new for us. It's sort of a evolution on the follow model, which I created at Twitter. I feel like I should have filed a patent on that because it became so widely used after that, but it would have just been a cool thing to have. I wouldn't have enforced it or anything. I do have a patent on Twitter, which is, I always wanted to be an inventor when I was a kid, so I now I, my wife, you don't get the certificate unless you ask for it. My wife, for my last birthday, like got me the fancy certificate and everything that says like official inventor and stuff. Anyway. Pretty um, exceptional birthday present. I know, it was really nice. Um, so how we came to do Jelly was, Surprisingly, the way I came to do a lot of things, which was a joke, basically. I mean, if you cut it all the way down, my co-founder now, Ben Finkel, is a really smart guy. I've known him since 2005 when a mutual friend... I moved out here in 2003 to work at Google, and then I left Google in 2005 to start a podcasting company, which was, didn't work out. It sort of turned into Twitter, and that worked out. Um, we were introduced by a mutual friend who said, Biz would be a good advisor to you because Ben had just put all his possessions in a car and driven out to San Francisco to start a company and didn't really know anybody or how to do it or anything. And Tony said, Biz, Biz would be good for you. So they, he introduced us, and I became an advisor, and we became friends. And so when his company got an offer from Facebook to be acquired, I tipped off Twitter, and Twitter acquired his company instead. And this was just as I was deciding to switch from daily role at Twitter to advisor to Twitter. So we kind of missed each other, but he worked there after I worked there for a couple of years. But then... We remained friends, and we were going on a walk and talk, which I do with lots of different types of people. And um, I sort of just had a random question, which was, "What if we were to? What if you and I had to build a search engine? Wouldn't that be crazy? I don't know how to build a search engine, <laughs> and um, you don't either." And he's like, "Well, actually, I, I'm, I could." And I was like, "No, no, we don't know how to build a search engine." And I was kind of talking over my. I tend to talk a lot, 
And then I kept talking, and I was like, wait a minute. Ah, I know what we would do. We wouldn't build a traditional search engine like, uh, like a web search engine. We would build a way for questions to be answered by people because we know how to build social platforms. And so what we could do is we could figure out a way for a, instead of a query being routed or instead of indexing the web so that you know what pages are about what and finding the right page for that query or the right page that is relevant to that query, we could find a person that's relevant to that question and that person could help you. Because for some percent of queries that people do on web search, there must be a whole bunch of them that are better answered by people. Because you, you see this in real life all the time. Sometimes you're, you're asking the wrong question altogether. Like, I had a question early on with Jelly, which our first version of Jelly, which was, I was Googling it like crazy. And I was wondering, what is the hotel with those little cottages? Instead of hotel rooms, it has little, little houses. Um, what is the name of it? It's in Sonoma. And so I was Googling Sonoma Little Cottage Hotel, and I was getting, like, nothing. I was getting cottages for sale in Sonoma and all this stuff. Couldn't figure it out. And um, finally I asked Anjali, and a person answered, oh, you mean the Carneros Inn? And I was like, yes, that's the place. And then they said, that's in Napa on Sonoma Highway. And I was like, oh, okay. So I was asking the wrong question. And so... Was the theory also that presumably you get people who are more interested and have more credibility also in a sense? Because right. when, you know, when you do a Google search, and I've been through this with friends who are ill, for example, yeah. everything in the world comes up when you search a particular illness. And well, you have no idea what's credible or not. And Well, you end up, it's, it seems like when you research even like a, some red dot on your skin, it ends up in death. <laughs> like, right, right, right. <laughs> it, like, it winds up being like, I have this rare form of, you know, spider bite. But, uh, yeah, the idea for us was not to find necessarily an expert, but to find someone who's kind of been there, done that. Like an everyday question and another everyday person who has like a hobby or something that you, it's a really hard question for you, but for them it's simple and actually fun to answer. We found so the trust button was about saying... Yeah. We're going to test you, you because you used the word earlier in a conversation of earning trust. Yeah. So the trust button is a way to say, we live in this crazy world of fake news. Of you never know how to assess what comes up in a Google search. Yeah. But on Jelly, people are going to earn the right yeah. to have their answers because be trusted. On, on Jelly, nobody knows who each other are. It's not a social network. There's many people who just search on Jelly. That's most of the activity, just searching. And then there's people who sign up to answer it, and we call them helpers. They're the people who sign up because they want questions delivered to them about certain topics. For example, they would love to answer questions about their neighborhood or their woodworking or whatever, even if there might be something else, like a VC. So the idea is that since nobody knows each other, it's kind of like, well, how do I know that this person knows anything like how do I know this person's good so how do you get over the problem of anonymous social media like yeah. Big Yak? well I mean the when you answer a question it's not anonymous asking is anonymous so that you can feel free to 
to ask whatever you want. Like if it's embarrassing or you, you want to be specific about money, but you don't want your friends to know these certain things. Or it's just awkward that you don't know it. <laughs> like people would assume you should know that and you don't. So we made asking anonymous so that it would, people would be freer and ask a lot more questions. But when you answer, that's attached to your Jelly profile Presumably because you're very proud of how many times you've answered questions and how many helpfuls you get. We had helpfuls originally, and we still do, how many helpfuls you have. Like, look at me, I have 700 helpfuls, right? I've been helpful to 700 people. And then we added trust because we thought it's multiple things. One, if a person trusts another person, that begins to form a network. Like, these people are now connected and if the person trusts them back, it's a two-way connection. And, and then, or you could say this question was answered by a person who's trusted by a person that you trust. Not necessarily, you don't trust them. So indirect but trust. Yeah, you, you trust yeah. the person who trusts them. So maybe that means something. And maybe you go ahead and trust them too. People are like, well, if Josh trusts them, I should. Uh, so that's uh, putting into technology the way people function in real life. Right. You, so you earn this trust. Like, so, so somebody in the parenting category might answer three or four of your questions, and they were just ringers, you know? And you're like, oh, my gosh, this really helped me get my kid to, to bed on time or whatever. And then you just finally you just say, I'm just going to trust this person. And we're still building out the functionality of what it means, but it definitely means they get notified that they've been trusted by you and their trust count goes up. And if one thing we learned from when I implemented the follow model is whenever you show a number on a profile, people want that number to go up. It's like, it's like a game. They want a, the number it's, up. It's fun, but it's also a way to hold people to account. Yeah. Um, so if we can just Because you, you can also take away the trust if they break that trust. Right. You can say, I don't trust you anymore, and the number can go down. But, but trust, earning the trust feels really good. And it also looks good. I mean, you could imagine a, a future where you're highly trusted on Jelly, you have a lot of helpfuls, and you want to put that on your resume. Like, check out my Jelly. Look at, look at how incredibly helpful and trusted I am to many different people. That would look good. It would look really good. So if we could just broaden the lens for a minute. I mean, in reading your book and in hearing you talk today, you've always had this sense of you're an entrepreneur, but the ethics happens along with the evolution of the product and with your thinking about how the culture of the company is going to evolve. And I'm just wondering if, in general, you think that entrepreneurs have a responsibility to think about ethics as they're getting products and services developed and companies started, or do you think that it's just they, they should just be worried about what they're working well, on? Well, it's funny. Until you um, asked to interview me, I, I never even thought about it. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I didn't... I didn't think specifically about being ethical. It just sort of, I just did what I did, I, you know, without knowing, I guess. I mean, I mean, not without knowing. I, I, I decided a long time ago that I was just going to be a good person and nice to everybody. It was a specific thing. You read about it in my book. Mm-hmm. I, I told a girl what I really thought of her painting, and I crushed her. And I was like, why did I do that? I didn't have to do that. I could have found something about the painting. Like I could have said I liked the colors. You I didn't have, have found a way s- to kindness with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't have to say right away that it was terrible and drippy, and I didn't think it was very good at all. That was looking at her face. I was like, what kind of person am I? So I went home that night, and I just decided that 
I'm just going to be really nice to everybody, and I'm just going to be a good person, and I'm just going to see how that works. And it worked really good, it turns out. Even if somebody's really unkind to you, if you're kind back to them, it it kind of takes the wind out of their the sails. Context, yeah. If you if it takes two people to fight, right? So if you're not fighting, then the other person just falls down. <laughs> like, so, so the other the other thing I hear from entrepreneurs though is you know oh ethics gets in the way of innovation. I'm innovating. Just come back later, Susan, when I'm done with my innovation. Well, and I'm wondering what your take is on I, that. I my take is that. You know, ethics or moral correctness is helpful in developing the kind of products I develop anyways. I mean, especially if you look at jelly. You want you want to make sure that you have things like trust in there. And you want to make sure that you temper the anonymity with uh, a system that only rewards good behavior. And even going back all the way to Blogger, when somebody would blatantly break the rules of blogger you know we there's a terms of service and we did this at both blogger and twitter everything has a terms of service and when we had the terms of service drawn up by a lawyer i went through it with a colleague and after every paragraph i wrote a sentence that was highlighted that said this is this is what it what means, it means in plain regular english, english. yeah um and that prompted me to then write just like the Twitter rules, kind of like a pool, you know, when these are the pool rules, no running, no diving, no, you know, like very simple stuff. And um, so I think this moral correctness is more of an advantage because you can, by setting this, you set the tone of the service that you're creating such that it attracts more people. More people will, will readily join up to a place that they feel is welcoming and that gives them a voice where they don't feel like, where they can feel safe and welcomed. Now, things have changed um, with the, as these tools have grown up and the people have gotten more sophisticated at using them, I mean, our problem used to be spam, but and now the problems are, you know, online bullying and fake news and um, hate speech and all right. these kind of things. So there needs to be a new approach. Right now, these companies are sort of, tr they're using the tools they know to use. They're, they're combating things like hate speech with tools designed to combat spam. So Di the technology has to catch up things. with the poor use. The way that the, these large-scale communication platforms combat spam is largely reactive. So you depend on the community itself to flag things as spam. And then you look at them and then you hide them from everyone so that they don't have to see it anymore. And that's reactive. So once you've seen hate speech, it's already happened. It's happened it. to you, you right. know? And even if you can block it, you can say, oh, we've introduced tools so you can block that. So you won't see that anymore from that person. But it's human nature to kind of want to peek over the fence and see if they're still doing it, you know? So there needs to be a more proactive approach to preventing that from happening in the first place. So since you mentioned these relatively new phenomena, I mean, bullying isn't new. Bullying used to happen no, in the playground. Yeah, now it happens right. on social media. Yeah. But the whole fake news, alternative facts, yeah. um, post-truth, <laughs> 
you know, I never thought I'd be teaching a class at Stanford this spring called The Ethics of Truth in a Post-Truth World. Oh, my gosh. Right. Or so, just the idea of an alternative fact. Alternative facts, exactly. Like, so that, that would make, that makes sense to me. Um, put me back in high school in algebra when I worked out the problem to 8 equals 4 somehow. Alternative facts would have helped me there. I I also happen to think that we are in a trial period still with the social media stuff. I mean, if you think about it in the long term, it's only been like yeah. 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And I think we're going to figure out like, oh, we went too far. Let's rein it back in. Because people, a lot of times they do technology for technology's sake and they just like, we can do this. We can make a tomato that can stay fresh and red for 30 years. For thir yeah. And like, yeah. but should we? No. So like, how exactly. about just tomatoes in season and then yeah. have something else when it's not summertime? Yeah. So, my take on the tomato question is if you integrate ethics in real time into your decision making, you think about what's going to happen if you do the 30 year lifespan tomato before you do it. Right. Right? You don't just yeah. kind of do it and put it out there and say, yeah. you know. Or like termin Terminator crops or whatever they call them. Like, yeah. oh, don't worry. The likelihood that these seeds will blow to another field is low. Right. What? I mean, yeah. of course they're going to blow to another field. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. like you talk a lot in the book about the importance of neutrality for Twitter. Oh, that was huge for us. And yeah. it was really interesting the way you, that it was a really a fundamental principle. It and it was difficult. one of the few times where I read something that at least I interpreted as we're just a platform and it's important that we be just a platform. Yeah, well, especially um, when it came to politics. Right. But so how, I mean, the world has moved on since then, even mm -hmm. though, I mean, in particular in the last six months, I mean, it's really short time frame. Yeah, the world has changed in the last 12 so days. So how do you interpret the responsibility of companies like Twitter or Facebook in this world that nobody could have anticipated when yeah. these companies started? And do you think neutrality is still the right thing when we are faced with the whole fake news phenomenon and, yeah. and all the um, rest? I think, well, what I was largely banging the drum of neutrality for was when it came to special favors for governments, you know, where if the State Department of the United States called up and wanted something done, I would bang the drum and shout and say, we're not going to do this because then we're just going to look like we are a tool of the U.S. government and no other government can trust us and we want everyone to use this so let's m make sure that everyone's equal on this thing like if a regular person and or the state department has an issue let's reduce them to the regular person level and you know we did things like if we were subpoenaed for a person's information on twitter we would say well you have to hand deliver the subpoena you can't fax it to us. We don't have a fax machine. And then also we gave the person, I think it was two weeks or 12 days or something like this, we told the person, these folks have subpoenaed for your information, so you you, you should go out and get a lawyer or something. I mean, mm -hmm. we didn't tell them what to do, but we right. notified them that this has been done so that they had a chance to do something about it. Uh, we just did everything we could to try to make things fair. But when it comes that so neutral in terms of government type stuff, but that now 
in the last 12 to 18 months, we're talking about fake news. Um, when we first created the retweet button, for example, one of my fears was, I said, I think it's worth building this button because it will allow good ideas and news to spread very quickly because once one person retweets it to their 100,000 followers and then you know 20% of those people retweet it to their number, I mean, it's just orders of magnitude, just boom, millions and millions of people will see this great idea or this important piece of news. But I said, I remember saying to Ev at the time, I said, what if somebody says uh, the building's on fire, we should jump out the windows? And that gets retweeted and people think it's real and they jump out the windows and they hurt themselves and there really was no fire. And he just said, well, that would be bad. And uh, I said, well, we should still go ahead with it because the general approach we took from, I built a social platform called Zanga back in 1999. Then I worked on Blogger at Google and then Twitter. And that our general philosophy was that there's way more good people than bad people on these systems. And in general, I mean, we couldn't build cities if everyone was killing each other all the time. So we depended on the, the basic and fundamental goodness of humanity. And also to, that people are going to be responsible in terms yes. of digesting how, what right. they read. Right. Yeah. Well, responsible in what they write and say, and then responsible in, and say like, no, 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 no. Hey, everybody, this is not true. And then that would get spread equally. Um, so that's how we thought of it then. But nowadays, you talk about sort of lifting your hands up and saying, hey, it's just a platform. We, you know, work it out. But there are things I think maybe these platforms should start to do in a proactive way to not allow for hate speech and fake news and things like this to spread. Just don't make fertile ground for it. Don't make it so easy and so ripe, you know? There's things you can do to make it less attractive for the people who want to put fake news. Just by an example, um, and I don't know how they determine what's fake and what's not, but Google doesn't let ads that pay go on fake news websites. They have so much money, they probably just hired a huge army of people to determine whether or not these sites are real news sites or not, but um, that's one way of making it not attractive to make a fake news site. Because a lot of people were just doing it for money. I read the, I read an art, I, sort of a breakdown of how this one guy was making this, was building fake news sites and making money. And he said he would have done it for either candidate because he was just making a lot of money. No, it's just opportunistic. But there's there's things we can do as platforms. I and mean, I say we, I don't work day to day at Twitter anymore, but there's things to be done that can make hate speech and fake news less attractive to those who want to pursue those endeavors. And certainly, I mean, I think the question comes down to, you know, not that the companies are going to be perfect and yeah, not that they're, you know, not. and of course they're going to be, they're going to have to be reactive to some extent because yep. who could have imagined this whole fake news alternative, I know. you know, alternative facts phenomenon. But the idea is, you know, do they have responsibility to be thinking right. about these things? I, yes, and, and I, I think and I, people will, will respect the companies that say, look, yeah. we're not bulletproof. 
uh, but we're trying. Right. And so, so with respect to, you know, these companies and this whole ecosystem depends to a large extent, at least at the beginning, on venture capital. And yeah. I'm just wondering to what extent, in your experience or in your view, VCs should be more attentive to the ethics of their entrepreneurs and to their uh, portfolio companies early on. And then in particular, many of them are board members of these companies as they grow and become public. Right. And they have fiduciary responsibility. But sort of the corollary question is, do they have maybe even more than... Right. legal fiduciary responsibility because they've been there and because they're lead investors. Yeah, I mean, we're, I'm already personally seeing this. I'm a limited partner and an advisor to Obvious Ventures, which is a fairly new venture firm. And this firm invests in a term I coined called world positive companies. So companies like Beyond Meat and Diamond Foundry like, for example, Beyond Meat makes hamburgers out of plants that are delicious and don't have cholesterol, and the amount of fat that's put in them is not too much, but it's just enough to make it taste good. So they're kind of doing something good for the world just by doing really well at, at their company. At their product, at the, yeah. Their company's doing very well. And so just by doing well, they're doing good. Same thing with this diamond company they're making these beautiful diamonds that are indistinguishable from real diamonds and you know I don't know too much about it but I've heard and read I've seen movies and read articles about the diamond the business di yeah, the not diamond, being yeah, the mining. not being as you would say an a, a very ethical or morally correct business and these are made these are just made with machines so they're still beautiful and people still can enjoy them and everything I mean, they are diamonds, and so they can be used as diamonds or used in tools or jewelry. And then you also see the rise of the B Corp, which is a relatively new thing, where, for people who don't know, the actual um, winning at, you know, or, or success of the company is not only defined by money. It's also defined by doing some sort of good so double bottom in line. the world. Yeah, there's a double bottom line, and you don't get punished for doing that. So if you're a B Corp and you say, okay, we're a B Corp, we're just starting out, and we pledge 10% of our profits and 5% of our employee time will go towards you know, housing for the poor or, or something like this, right? And then you grow and you and you become a really big successful company and you IPO, and part of your job is still to give these quarterly reports on okay, so how are you doing on the on the housing and the volunteer time and the ten percent of and, and you don't get punished for doing that. Right. So it's these are very part clear of the cases. Value. These are very clear cases where either the legal model or the actual products and services are ethically minded. Right. But what about the cases, for example, the sharing economy companies that are neither necessarily, although they, they, it can be argued that, for example, Uber and these kinds of things are very, you know, ultimately do a lot of good for in a lot of different ways. But if you're a VC and you see a company like that that has potential enormous growth, enormous profit, enormous potential for an exit, do you think that these VCs should be saying, oh, hold on a second, you know, you can grow, but you can't grow until you sort out that you have absolutely first-in-class um, passenger safety really matters. Uh, that you know you have first-in-class driver screening, and that you are assuring that 
maybe it's not completely outsourced, uh, the platform model, and maybe it's not the old model of employees. Maybe it's some kind of a blend, and we figured out a sort of an ethical way to treat drivers. Yeah, well, it would seem to me, maybe I wouldn't be a very good VC, but it would seem to me that these things would make the company more attractive both to employees and to people who invest in it to know that well this company is spending a, a lot of resources on making sure that the riders are very safe and comfortable and the drivers are treated well i mean any company that generation z or whatever is that what they're calling it now generation z these kids are really interested and attracted to companies that are doing good by doing well. And in this world where you can know everything about anything, uh, you can know what the CEO had for breakfast, you can know what initiatives a company supports. These Generation Z kids are choosing the ones that are doing meaningful things in the world. So it's it's more attractive. The, the yeah, services will get strategy. more they'll get yeah, it's it's like almost like a marketing yeah. strategy. It's they'll a get more they'll get better talent. It, it, when you look around Silicon Valley, these guys and gals who are really good at engineering and so forth, they can work anywhere they want for very large sums of money. And they care money. about their personal reputations. And they care about these things and so now it's a matter of well, where do I want, what kind of company do I want to work at? Since I can make all this money, you know, no matter what, what kind of life do I want to lead? How do I want to be spending my time? And it's my hope that just by coming in and sitting in the chair, they're already doing something good, right? Already, because the company is committed to doing good things, you know? So just by coming in, if they help the company do well, they're doing good. But you cite also, in, in your book, you talk a lot about the other kinds of things that you did at Twitter, everything from water bottles to a set of assumptions that says, okay, everybody, let's take a deep breath. There are very intelligent people who don't work here. Yeah. We need to listen, all these kinds of things. So what, in your mind, are sort of the, the three or four most important elements of an ethical corporate culture? Um, that's the first time I've been asked the question. Uh, well... One thing I, I think is that you need to have something besides purely financial. The description of your success cannot be based purely on money. There needs to be sort of a different definition of capitalism such that it means, yes, you make money. You're a business. But also, you're doing something good in the world and people love their work. If you have all three of these things, this should be like the perfect model for a company. And these days, as you're saying, people love their work when they believe in yes. not just what's done, but the way it's done. People want a meaning. They want to know that there's like a, a higher <laughs> calling, I guess, or like mm -hmm. a, a bigger thing than themselves that they're all working towards. This idea that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts is a very compelling idea to a lot of people. You know, like, I'm part of this company, but together this company is an organism that does these global things in the world that can have positive impact and I at think that level. People are more and more aware, and largely because of social media, 
of global risks also of climate change, of mm -hmm. global governance failure, of pandemics, you know, Zika, Ebola, yep. et cetera. Right. And so looking globally, what do you think would be society's biggest ethical challenge today? Um, well, I, I think the biggest, I don't know if this is an ethical challenge or not, but um, we need to be able to cooperate on a global scale. We're not able to do that right now. If people thought of themselves not as a citizen of a certain state or country, but thought of themselves as citizens of the world, and we could cooperate on more of a global scale, we could get so much more done. And a byproduct of this would be, you know, the end of hunger and the end of all disease and the end of poverty. I mean, just by way of an example of how not to do something, and not to pick on this company, but Google figured out, a, a, you know, the, the many, many years, a lot of very talented PhDs who also spent many, many years studying all of this stuff. Um, they got them all together, they hired them all, they spent all these years to figure out how to build a server farm that worked better than the old way, which was these giant monolithic computers. They built a huge like warehouse, let's say, of a lot of cheap computers that were designed, the whole, the whole thing was designed around the fact that it will break. So designed for breakage. So deliberate obsolescence. Right, so, so they figured that out and they built it and they figured out how to do all these automatic restarts and all this stuff. And then Facebook comes along and they have to figure out how to build the whole thing over again and take all that time, all more PhDs, all this other stuff. Whereas if, if they had just said, here's the plans, then they could have just done those and then gone on and, and used their PhDs to, to do, something, do else. something else and yeah. advance, you know. And, and then to Facebook's credit, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they open sourced the way that they built their data centers. But this kind of idea comes up in so many different ways. Like there's been a resurgence, for example, of attention to Buddhism where there are core ideas about everybody's connected. Mm. Oh, actually, the, I don't know if you know this, but the, you know the, the six degrees of separation? Mm -hmm. That study was redone a few years ago, and it's now 3.8. I had not it's heard four. that. So we're now connected by four degrees of separation to anyone on the planet mm -hmm. because of mobile and social mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Or mosquitoes, right? What happened with the news last summer? We have Zika in Brazil, yep. and all of a sudden we have it in Miami. Yeah, uh, we have Ebola in a, in a hospital in Houston. You know, so the things that we think are going to happen over there, so to yeah, speak. Yeah, right. We really are all connected, right? I mean, it's you can't avoid. So that's it. a real argument for your sort of saying, okay, everybody's a stakeholder in all of these problems, yep. and we should think of ourselves as a. You know. I once argued at Oxford Union. I didn't realize what I was getting into. I didn't know that it was such a big deal. I accepted, and then my friend told me. Like, wait, what? You're arguing at Oxford Union? And I was like, yeah, it's just some, it's just part of something. I think it's after di the dinner or something. And he's like, uh, dude, 
do you, do you know who argued there? And I was like, no, he's like, Albert Einstein, Malcolm X. And I was like, oh, my God, what do I do? Teach me how. <laughs> and he was like, well, there's this, there's this particular style of debate called Oxford debate. And luckily, you'd probably be good at it because it's half facts, half wit. <laughs> you know, if you can get people, if you can kind of zing people, you, it gets you points. And I was like, okay, okay. And, and um he taught me how to do it. We did like a mock argument. I forget what the mock argument was, but I remember what the real one was. And I remember that I won the real one. And the argument that was posed, and it was, and I, I was going up against editors from The Economist and, and professors. That's I know. And the argument was the problems of tomorrow are bigger than the entrepreneurs of today. In other words, like, the entrepreneurs of today have no chance of solving the problems to the of tomorrow, right? And so my argument was that entrepreneurs are not individuals. Entrepreneurs represent people who then bring together entrepreneurial people who then grow these large teams, you know, if successful, grow these large teams of thousands of people. And if these... On, on, and, and then I said some, you know, some of the world's biggest problems are things like climate change. And these companies, they can, um, there's, no, there's no risk of divulging uh, IP if you're working together on something like climate change. So therefore, these multi-thousand person companies can work together and collaborate and now you're talking global scale collaboration because not only do these companies represent thousands of people at the company, they serve hundreds of millions of customers and they can communicate to those customers. And if everyone can just do one small thing, you have global scale and you are at the scale where you can combat these and to giant problems. Point about and rethinking so we want capitalism, if all of these companies get together in a certain way, then the few who decide they're not going to play ball are going to pay the consequences in the market. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things I wanted to do at Twitter was I wanted to have, I, when we introduced our, our ad model, which was promoted tweets, I wanted to also have promoted tweets for good. And these tweets would cost extra. And part of the cost would go to a cause. And they would look different. It's they a would great be, idea. They so would, they'd be distinguishable. They would be green. They would be distinguished, right? So, like, what you would do is, as a company, you would promote the tweets. You would promote something you're doing for good as a company. And you would pay more for it. And the idea is that um, Twitter would then also make a donation somewhere. But you would look like a schmuck if you didn't do the the promoted tweet for good. So all of a sudden, everyone would have to do the more expensive promoted tweets for good. Twitter would make more money, but also be able to donate the money. And all of these companies would be promoting all of these good things. And that's so just, that's a great example of just shifting the levers of, of capitalism. Yeah, just a little bit, you know, like these ones are green and the, they're a promoted tweet for good. And now, oh, you just wanted to do a regular promoted tweet just for money. Okay. We're really running out of time, unfortunately. Um, but there are a couple of other things I just wanted to ask you before we finish. Um, one is you're obviously a designer also. 
We talked earlier about the Jelly logo, which I think is fantastic. Thank you. Uh, if you had to name one work of art, and it doesn't have to be visual art, that you think is really just um, a statement about ethics or a, a lesson about ethics or about oh good behavior, is there something that comes to mind? Well, I vaguely remember, and I, I can't, I can't remember anymore the name of the movie. But it was, I think I mentioned in my book, it's a really old movie, and it's a black and white movie, and it, this sounds crazy, but it has something to do with a guy dressing up in a big bunny suit and deciding that he's going to be really nice to everyone and, and just be, and help everyone. I know, I remember reading about it in the book. Yeah, and and that was, that to me was that plus telling the girl about her painting. And then I happened to watch that old movie. I liked I like old movies, and I happened to watch that old movie, and it, and it affected me. Ugh, I wish I could remember the name. But in this movie, the guy decided, you know what, I'm just going to be really nice to everybody and see what, go see what happens. And he just, great thing after great thing ha continued to happen. And I was like, that's one of the reasons why I was like, hmm, maybe this will work for me. And it has worked so far. Well, it seems to be working incredibly well. And one last question, if I may. Um, I was very struck by, I guess you called them assumptions at Twitter, um, or you had this list. Right, of the idea that you're not supposed to make assumptions, but people do make assumptions, right. so please make these assumptions. Make these assumptions. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, if we, we can call them assumptions, we can call them true north or, yeah, or moral rule, guidelines. Rules, whatever. Uh, where yeah, do you company. get yours? Is it family? Is it religion? Is it other entrepreneurs or innovators that you've looked at? Is it from... It's not from the arts. I think that um, it's none of those things. I, I kind of think maybe that I designed them myself, um, that I designed my own set of ethics that I guess you could say I'm an existentialist. I decided how to live my life and by what rules. And I don't necessarily have the rules named out, but... One of the, just one thing, for example, is I very much enjoy helping other people solve their problems. It actually gives me joy. So sometimes I say to people, I'm not actually a good guy. I just like helping people personally. So it seems like I'm a good guy. And then I realize, like, why am I saying this? I, I don't have to <laughs> right. go out of my way to say I'm a bad guy. Right. But, um, and ethics really isn't about judging whether somebody's good or bad. Right. I mean, we all, you know. So I just, I think I just designed my own set of, you know, good, uh, of living in a way that is good for me and good for everyone and good for the world. Well, that's the first time I've heard that. With all of the entrepreneurs, all of the artists, all of the business leaders or government really? representatives I've spoken with in different ways through research or this kind of interview. Because I never really was, re we I've weren't religious. That. I grew up without a dad. You know, th none of that stuff applies. It's just sort of self-made decisions and then just sort of stuck. They stuck. Well, they seem to be serving you well. Yes, um, they really are. <laughs> Thank you so much, Biz, for having me. Of it's course. really an honor to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me. That was Biz Stone, co-founder and CEO of Jelly Industries.